Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and today I actually have Norman Horn on with me to co-host this for reasons that will become obvious within a few minutes. Uh, Norm, thanks for being here. Thank you, Doug. It's good to be back as always. And we have our special guest, who is the editor of a book we're going to talk about, John Mark Hicks, who is professor of theology at Lipscomb University and has taught in higher education among the Churches of Christ for over 35 years. He has published several works on the Stone Campbell history and theology and is editor of the book, Resisting Babel, Allegiance to God and the Problem of Government. John, thanks for being with us. Doug, it's really uh, my pleasure to be here. Honored to be asked. Thank you. So I picked up your book, I don't know, it was in a it was a couple months ago someone mentioned it to me and I was like, "Oh my oh, goodness, I mentioned this it is to like you. a you mentioned <laughs> oh, it was Norman. Okay. I couldn't remember who mentioned it to me and then I saw the ti- I, the, the subtitle is Allegiance to God and the Problem of the Government and in 2 days Amazon delivered it to my doorstep. And I thoroughly enjoyed reading this. Now, I am not of the Churches of Christ tradition, which we're going to talk about here in a minute. And so this was this topic of allegiance is really important to me uh, as a Christian and as a libertarian, it relates, you know, for me, it relates very much so to how do we deal with, with the state and the government and, and so forth. And so this introduction to this person named David Lipscomb is a really, really fascinating read because I didn't know about this tradition, if you will, that people have been thinking similarly about the state as I was with respect to allegiance. I'm not going to keep going into that more. I'm going to let Norman sort of jump in and introduce us a little bit more. But I just wanted to sort of start off with like, as somebody who is not part of the tradition that you and Norman come from, this is just awesome reading. I'll just stop with that. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, it, it does represent a stream of tradition within Churches of Christ that really, um, you know, Churches of Christ were at the turn of the 20th century, around, you know, 1900 was the largest peace church in the United States. So there's a whole tradition of this within the movement of Churches of Christ. And when you say peace church, that may be a term that's some, somewhat unfamiliar mm-hmm. to a lot of people. Uh, so what, do you, what exactly do you mean by that? It's, it's recognizing uh, a trajectory of anti-war, pacifistic, people who will not participate in the government wars. They will not become soldiers on the battlefield. And so peace churches are like Mennonite church, Quakers, and Churches of Christ would have been categorized in a very general way as a peace church around the time of World War I, for example. So this is super interesting because the origin of that, even in our tradition, the Churches of Christ, John, of course, goes back to our founding and kind of the, the basis of why we think the way we think about how the church should be organized in the first place. And I think it would be instructive for a lot of folks who listen who don't come from our tradition to kind of hear a little bit about that history. And so can you perhaps, uh, you know, you're an expert church historian and very well ensconced in our tradition. Could you give us a sort of high level overview of, you know, where does the Church of Christ come from and why does that matter as it pertains to being a peace church in the first place? 
Yes, Churches of Christ come from a historical tradition that finds its roots in the early 19th century, like 1804, 1809 are key dates, 1812 is a key date. So in that early frontier America, there were a, a several individuals and groups associated with those individuals who believed that we need to reject denominationalism, that we need to have uh, unity among Christians. And the best way to find unity is to go back to the Bible and do what the Bible says, to be the church of the New Testament. And for some of those, that meant they were pacifistic, like Barton W. Stone, who ultimately held the view that influenced David Lipscomb in terms of allegiance to God and the problem of government. Uh, so in the early 19th century, a group of people began on a project to restore Christianity, to restore the New Testament church in order to unite Christians on the Bible. And so Churches of Christ grew out of that movement. Now, some other groups grew out of that movement as well, but Churches of Christ, primarily in the South, through Talbert Fanning, who was a leading educator in Nashville, Tennessee, who educated David Lipscomb at Franklin College in Nashville, Tennessee. And David Lipscomb, in some ways, is the father of Churches of Christ, if we think of Churches of Christ in a narrow sense of a particular tradition um, that uh, exists, that has continuity with what we have today in Churches of Christ on a, in a general way. So while that was kind of one movement before the Civil War, after the Civil War, we had several different trajectories. One of those trajectories is now known as the Christian Church or Christian Churches, Churches of Christ. Another trajectory is known as the Disciples of Christ. But the tradition known as Churches of Christ is the one that was deeply influenced by David Lipscomb and by Southern proclivities and Southern attitudes and Southern perspectives. I don't, does that give you something of what you were needing? Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. And, and you'll hear, you know, the terms restorationism yeah. about these, about this as well. And also, you know, you mentioned Barton Stone. And then you also sometimes hear the term the Stone-Campbell movement, referring, of course, yes. to Alexander Campbell, yes. uh, who also was quite anti-war. Yes. Um, and in fact, uh, we'll point out that there is a, an on-the-record in the Congressional Register speech that he gave in front of Congress against the war. Uh, you might be, you can, you can probably tell me which year that was. Uh, it was the Mexican <laughs> War. Yeah, the Mexican yeah. War. Uh, and so, you know, so Alexander Campbell was also a pacifist and mm -hmm. uh, opposed the Mexican-American War. And also Talbert Fanning published a piece in which he opposed the Mexican-American War. So in 1848, Campbell and Fanning, Campbell living in Northern Virginia, near Pennsylvania, and Fanning living in Nashville, Tennessee, were two major representatives of, of the Stone-Campbell tradition, or what we know as the American Restoration Movement. And both of them were very vocal about opposing entrance into the war uh, with Mexico. And they thought that was just imperialistic. It was, it was uh, violent, of course, and they opposed the extension of government power through violence. So... And what's terrific about this, I mean, it all kind of culminates in a sense to me in the thought of David Lipscomb as it progressed through the 1850s, through the Civil War, yeah, through the Civil and in War. the writings that he wrote that, that came after that. Uh, and 
Resisting Babel, your book, is really key in kind of rehabilitating a lot of this thought. And so what I'm kind of, as we kind of transition into talking about the book itself, I hope you could give us a sense in which, how did David Lipscomb kind of come into this level of thought? I mean, obviously there's the the tradition that came from Stone and Campbell, but how did Lipscomb get to be where he was? Yeah, that's a good question. And there's some murkiness about that, but we do have some pretty solid contours. Uh, his teacher, Talbert Fanning, was certainly one who thought of civil government as as a satanic reality. That is, the use of violence in government and the, the way coercion is a part of government uh, reflects the values and system of evil. And he taught David Lipscomb that, but David Lipscomb didn't buy into it. In fact, David Lipscomb uh, gave a, a speech at his alma mater in which he lauded the voting booth and said, this is, uh, you know, the American experiment is one of God's gifts to the world and that sort of thing. But in 1860, he cast his um, last vote. And his last vote was for Bell, the constitutional party uh, that tried to keep the, uh, the country united. And he became disillusioned with how everybody invested so much in the, the partisanship, invested so much in the sense of government and allegiance to government. Uh, and I think that began to turn him. And by before the war started, he was opposing succession and he was opposing violence, opposing potential war. And then when the war started, he was disillusioned with the fact that Christians on North and South were going to fight each other, that we're going to shoot Christians. You know, one Christian is going to shoot another Christian because they're just in a different national entity. And he he began to realize, I think, um, or uh, actually embrace the view of his teacher, Talbert Fanning, that the kingdom of God has priority and that the kingdom of God is our only allegiance. Whatever we do for government, we do as a duty to God. And since it's as a duty to God, we do not do what the government asks when the government asks us to do something that violates the principles of the kingdom of God, such as kill somebody, right? Yeah. Uh, or coerce someone into, into some sort of uh, morality. Even that, uh, Lipscomb thought, was uh, inappropriate. The kingdom of God becomes the highest priority. So. By the 1861, 62, 63 period, he has shifted his his sense of priorities such that now he sees the government as opposing the kingdom of God and that the principles of the government, the spirit of the government, the means of the government, the the, the way the government uh, is self-interested, that the government is primarily about its own survival and its own self-interest, and that the kingdom of God has different priorities and has a different set of values. And so he began to see the two as very much in strong conflict with one another, such that at the essence of the kingdom of God, according to Lipscomb, was the Sermon on the Mount. And if a Christian is going to live out the Sermon on the Mount, that puts them in automatic contrast and automatic conflict with the kingdoms of this world, because you can't you can't uh, officiate a government on the principles of the Sermon on the Mount, hmm. and so the two kingdoms are distinct, 
and the two kingdoms are in conflict, and one must choose. And one of his favorite sayings, of course, was, you, you can't have two masters. You're either going to have the kingdom of God as your master, or you're going to have some political partisanship as your master. I, w- I want to jump in and ask a question here. The term civil government or civil governance, it seems to have a particular flair or nuance to what we mean by the term government. I think a lot of people kind of sloppily use the term government, or we, we might use the word the state to sort of differentiate the word government. Is there something about the word civil government that you're using here and that, that Lipscomb used that, that we should be, you know, sort of attuned to with that word civil in, in sort of in front of it? No, that's a good question. Civil here for Lipscomb is used to distinguish between uh, the reign of God and the reign of human beings. For him, civil government is human beings taking on uh, a rule over other human beings that uh, is grounded in coercion, grounded in violence, grounded in self-interest. So civil government is kind of like secular government. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Maybe it's, a secular is a good synonym for that. Uh, it's the human government over in contrast to the divine reign or the divine government. So the word government is not a problem because we can... Lipscomb can talk about uh, human government, and he can talk about divine government. Mm, okay. But civil government is his word for secular human government. But he also has a distinction there, because uh, I think it's important to realize that, you know, we, we, we read Lipscomb saying the government of God, and that there, it is in conflict with human government or civil government. But he's not referring to the government of God as, say, a theocratically nuanced institution. And that's, I, I think, kind of right. where some people would could get him wrong. Mm. And so from your perspective, how would you describe that? Well, yes, I think that's correct. When, he, when he's thinking about the reign of God uh, in the present, he's thinking about the church for him. The church is to embody the reign of God. And we should see in Christian communities, in the church, in, in the... Um, gathered people of God, the values of God embodied and lived out and proclaimed and borne witness to. And it's in the church that that we should find integration. We should find uh, justice and compassion and shared resources and care for the poor. And the church should then be this light and the city on the hill, you might say, the salt of the earth. And that's where the reign of God is, according to Lipscomb. We find it in the church. Uh, of course, he recognizes the church is quite flawed and the church is, is failing to live up to it. But part of the reason he thinks the church fails to live up to the calling of the kingdom of God is because they are so deeply entrenched and involved in the partisan politics of secular or civil government. And he thought if we put all the money we put into partisan politics, if we put that into the reign of God as expressed in Christian communities, that's where transformation would happen. Because the the goodness and the righteousness of the kingdom of God would have a leavening influence over the culture if we would prioritize the kingdom of God over participation in civil government. 
And this is such a, an intense message to hear coming from people in the 19th century mm. where we don't get, we, we do not get educated about this in, in our public school system or even in our Christian school system, let's be honest, right? Yeah. Uh, that's what's ama- amazing to me is that e- like even, in, even in our churches of Christ now, we don't hear this message enough. No, we don't. And and we'll get into that, I think, a little more later. But I I want to, you know, emphasize this because this is certainly something to where I was stunned when I began learning about Lipscomb in this type of context, you know, on the order of about eh, 14 or 15 years ago. Mm. And to think that this is this is part of our heritage in the Church of Christ was really cool to me. Well, we have to remember as well that, you know, not everybody bought the line here, right? Of Not everybody followed in behind Lipscomb. I mean, Franklin College, half of the students and half of the faculty uh, joined the Confederacy right. uh, and went to war. I mean, one of the teachers uh, at Franklin College died in, in one of the first battles in West Virginia. So it, um, and David Lipscomb had a cousin who died in, in the war. Um, so not everybody bought into this, and there was real resistance to it as, as you read through the literature in the Gospel Advocate, for example, the, mm-hmm. the periodical that Lipscomb edited. Uh, there was very strong resistance to this, and Lipscomb attributed that to how deeply infected we were uh, and people are with, with a political gene. You know, they are yep. our political virus. It becomes... Um, of religion for them. Uh, it becomes idolatry, according to Lipscomb, because we place so much hope in the government to, uh, to save the world. You know, there becomes a messianic complex. And, we, and I think we, we have seen that over and over again in, in politics. Yeah, that sounds real familiar, doesn't it, right now? <laughs> it does, right? Now, it is familiar. Almost regardless of which side you're looking at these days. No, I think it's such a good, it's such a good message to hear. Uh, and, and, you know, it illustrates that you know, our problems are not new. The things that we encounter today are not new. These are things that were in the 19th century, in the 18th century, and beyond. Uh, it's important to remember that and to take heed of the voices that rose up against it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded even though I think it was super cool to see, for instance, that in 1861, 62, uh, you saw Lipscomb rise up with churches in, in his area in, in, in middle Tennessee yeah. uh, to even petition uh, at the, at, at first it was the governor of Tennessee, or I guess it was the president of uh, Jefferson Davis. Jefferson Davis. Yes. Yeah. To allow, to basically say like, we're, we're not going to fight. We should be exempt from the draft because, Hey, we're Christians. <laughs> it's like right. the subtle undertones there, I think are pretty hilarious. You know, like, Oh, well, you know, Christians are, aren't supposed to do this. So, you know, if we're Christians, so we're not going to do that. I mean, rather indicting when you think about it. <laughs> uh, and then he did the same thing to, uh, to Andrew Johnson uh, when he came in and, and was appointed the military governor of Tennessee, exactly. who people will recall eventually Andrew Johnson became President Johnson yeah. post the uh, assassination of President Lincoln and, and did the same thing. Those and, were very interesting documents because yep. they, they are not just the, the signature, signature of one person. It is rather... A gathering of, I think it was ten to fifteen different churches, yep. congregations in Middle Tennessee, uh, and David Lipscomb was a part of that, one of the leaders of that, as well as Talbert Fanning and and many others. In fact, William Wharton was another one who was uh, kind of a he was 
sort of an unknown figure, but he was a, a leading figure in Nashville. He was actually the chaplain of the prison in Nashville. Oh, wow. And he was called into the Governor Johnson's office and uh, imprisoned because he would not declare allegiance uh, to the federal government. Well, he wouldn't declare allegiance to the Confederate government either because he didn't believe in declaring allegiance to any government. Uh, and that would be true of Lipscomb and that document. In fact, the, the document explicitly says that, that you know, we, our allegiance is to the kingdom of God and it's not to a government. So in our contemporary context, when we have all these discussions about uh, kneeling or not kneeling and Star Spangled Banner standing or you know, hand over heart or yeah. pledge allegiance, David Lipscomb would not be a part of saying any pledge of allegiance to the United States of America because he believes only allegiance is to the kingdom of God. Yeah, it's, so it sounds like uh, that sort of uh, that sort of behavior goes back at least 150 or 60 years, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So it should be respected. I mean, mm -hmm. even even if it we don't necessarily agree uh, with 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 the exact expression as of now. Yeah, there's a reason that, and, and the history of that even amongst ourselves. Yeah, and so I think that's where the theology has to uh, you know find its own yeah. application in our culture and our context. Uh, but the theology of my priority, my prime allegiance, or my even my sole allegiance is to the kingdom of God, what implications does that have for how I relate mm -hmm. to the government? Now, for, for Lipscomb, it was, I will obey the government as long as it doesn't tell me to do something God doesn't want me to do. I will uh, submit to the government, but I will not support the government. Uh, I will pay taxes because God told me to pay taxes. And so I'm going to do that. I'm going to obey God but I will submit, but I will not support. And that means I am not going to engage in any activity that assumes political power because political power always corrupts, according to Lipscomb, because political power is always self-interested. So th this was his activity during the Civil War where he resisted by, we're not going to fight. Right. And then, and in fact, we'll point out that those those documents we have uh, on LCI's website, we have reposted those. Uh, you can find both of those letters and uh, from about, I want to say about a month ago. We'll make sure and put them in the show notes. And, and in fact, uh, what we just posted this last Saturday uh, involved the discussion about that simple submission but not support mm. uh, and, and uh, that Lipscomb wrote about. And, and that came about, however... Uh, those that publication came about in 1866, following the Civil War, and so I kind of want to hear from you, John. What your kind of perspective on post Civil War? Lipscomb had a mission to begin talking about these subjects more comprehensively, and he did so during in, in the Gospel Advocate. We have these records; they may be a little less known to some people than others. Uh, but what, what happened? Why did Lipscomb, Lipscomb start? you know, writing all this stuff in, in, to, in the Gospel Advocate uh, and, and right. begin teaching this way? No, that's a, that's a good question. And it really goes to the sectionalism that divided the country at the time. I mean, it's, it's immense, right? I mean, Reconstruction and all that's about to begin. The South is impoverished. The North is, in Lipscomb's view, arrogant and pugnacious and um, dominating. Uh, in fact, Lipscomb tries to raise a hundred, tries to raise some money from the North to help the poor of the South. Uh, instead, a Northern church builds a church building for a hundred thousand when that money could have been used. I mean, so there's a lot of 
of tension, sectional tension. But what Lipscomb wanted people to understand is that the recent war was actually the result of a misplaced allegiance. It was, a, it was an allegiance to your national government or to your section of the country. It was an allegiance to your state, whether it was Virginia or New York. It was a misplaced allegiance. And so because the war was so horrendous and so destructive, 600,000 people die in the Civil War, right? Yeah. Lipscomb uh, wants to reorient his, his people, the ones who are listening to him, to the kingdom of God rather than rooting themselves in some kind of sectionalism that is ultimately a political reality. So I think he wants, in some sense, not only to prevent <laughs> or to prepare the soil for, let's not do that again, but also to, to say to his church, uh, look, we got to put the sectionalism behind us and we have to put our priority in the kingdom of God and we can't do that until we understand the sort of conflict that is a part of the reality of the kingdom of God and the nation states or the world powers, as he called them. In fact, he gets that phrase world powers from Hinks von Hingstenberg's commentary on Revelation, which was written in uh, the 1830s or so, which has this... Um, I didn't know that. I'm glad yeah. you mentioned that. I did not realize that. <laughs> yeah, that's it, it, that commentary by von Hingstenberg is a progressive commentary. In other words, he thinks it, it's telling the history of the world. Mm -hmm. And it's telling the history of the world through the lens of the world powers versus the kingdom of God. And Lipscomb takes that same topic up. And I think that's, he doesn't want Christians to be fighting Christians again. Yeah. He doesn't want Christians to shoot at Christians again. And he thinks that the root of that problem was a misplaced allegiance uh, and that partisan politics uh, will ultimately destroy the church by dividing it and by getting them shooting at each other when the church should be a, a union of people dedicated to the kingdom of God. So I think that's why he starts that series and tries to lay out not only to justify his own pacifism during the war or his his own, um, I don't want to say indifference, but his, his own separation from government and the war uh, during the war. He wants to justify that, but he also wants to prepare people to embrace a different way of living so we don't do this again. We don't have another civil war, uh, whether it's a civil war in which we're shooting bullets at each other or a civil war in which we are uh, assassinating each other with words and with language and with our own actions. Um, so I think that's kind of what, what he was after. I, I believe so as well. That it, it was very much a, a matter of educating people as to what happened and on the basis of that, yeah, the, the misplaced allegiance and that it, 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 if you get, get that right, get your allegiance straight and then so much will fall into place. So much of it is also out of your control, but as long as you're the you know, as I like to use the words, the one improved unit, then you're in, you're in the right position. Be the people of God and the rest will come through. And, and Lipscomb understood the consequences of that position. Uh, he experienced it in the war. He lost two-thirds of his property in the war. Mm -hmm. Wharton, for example, was imprisoned for his non-allegiance to the government. And 
Talbert Fanning as well lost his property during the war. So it was this was not a a kind of uh, abstract decision. This was a decision that had perilous consequences. One time there's a story told about how Lipscomb was preaching a sermon and and a Confederate officer entered the back to listen to the sermon. He was sent by by um oh by Forrest, by um, you know, the Ku Klux Klan guy, Forrest. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember the full name, but I can't Nathan Bedford Forrest. Yeah, Nathan Bedford Forrest. There it is. You know how I, the only reason I know that is that uh, over Thanksgiving break, Forrest Gump was on. Oh. And, that's, <laughs> and there, my kids were watching with my parents. And yeah. like that little bit of the scene, that's the only reason. Yeah, that was one of the scenes in the movie, right? A remembrance of that, right? Yeah. So Nathan Bedford Forrest is the one who sent this officer to go hear him preach because he wanted to see if Lipscomb was a traitor. And um when the officer heard the sermon and went back, he said, I don't know if he's a traitor or not, but one thing I do know is that he's a Christian um, and that he has a sole allegiance to the kingdom of God. On another occasion, when he was preaching during the Civil War, uh, there, were, um, there was a guy who rose up in the congregation and said, interrupted his sermon and said, if, if 11 of you will join me, we'll hang this man right now. Uh, and that, so he knew the consequences of what he was saying. He knew there were, uh, that this was not going to be just kind of, oh, we'll ignore him and you know he's, he doesn't mean what he really said. No, there was hostile action against Lipscomb in this position. And I think you can hear that today when you, when you, when you critique the idolatry of nation states and the allegiance some people give to nation states, you're going to get some very, very strong pushback. Uh, just don't stand up during the, in the Star Spangled Banner and you'll, you'll see what kind of pushback you get, right? I mean, that's exactly. that sort of thing, right? Well, and, and we certainly get our own measure of, uh, uh, we'll call it hate mail. <laughs> uh, even for okay. the, the types of things that even we say, um, I mean, whether that's on Facebook or on our website as well, I mean, that, that does happen. And, uh, and it's interesting, you know, you, the reception that you're, describing, you know, preaching uh, and getting this huge pushback. There's even a point in the book I remember, and I guess I have a quote here in front of me where, you know, it says that Fanning and Lipscomb, and this is post-Civil War, discovered sectionalists and politicians north and south who only a few short months ago were thirsting for each other's blood were now united in opposition to us. (laughs) I mean, isn't that, it's remarkable Mm -hmm. because these people who were, they were shooting at each other not long ago decide that, oh, well, you know, I guess we're, we're all hunky-dory with each other now, so now we have to go after the people who, <laughs> who didn't want these people to be shooting at each other in the first place? Right. It's, it's remarkable. Doesn't that show how subversive it is to say, my only allegiance is to the kingdom of God? Yeah, and that I will not fight you. Yeah, and I will not You are not my enemy. Right. I mean, it's, it's amazing what kind, of, what, kind of, what, what kind of reaction that can get, even from other Christians. It's remarkable. And, and it's why this message is so important. Uh, so, so John, this, as, this, as these ideas kind of proceeded forward, uh, I mean, what, what kind of happened over the, the ensuing, you know, say 40, 40, 50 years or so as Lipscomb continued on in his ministry and leading up to, you know, the early 20th century? How did that kind of proceed? Yes, I mean, that, um, I think it was, it was very controversial. It was always controversial. Uh, it had a following. 
and it had many practitioners, especially in the Mid-South here, especially around Nashville, Tennessee, and and other people like James A. Harding, and I'll throw out some names like R.H. Bowl and, and others. So it had a following, but there was always opposition to it. Uh, it was never a and it was never kind of like everybody believed this. No, no, it was always opposition. But it had enough impact and enough influence to to give to be able to characterize Churches of Christ as a peace church by the time World War One arrived. And what we see happening with World War One, you know, as uh, the progressive movement comes into play with Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson uh, and Teddy Roosevelt, and the United States becomes an imperial power. Uh, and imperialism becomes part of the manifest destiny, you know, of of United States government. Lipscomb is opposing that. He is opposing those kinds of ideas, and he sees them as as um, undermining the kingdom of God and subversive to the kingdom of God. And what happens is in World War One, all this kind of comes to a head because in World War One, Woodrow Wilson introduces several pieces of legislation and is passed by the Congress, like the Sedition Act that makes uh, spying on Americans illegal and empowers Amer- uh, uh, the government to imprison people, to shut down papers, to shut down uh, institutions. Churches of Christ lost a college, the Cordell Christian College in Oklahoma, because the local government, the local draft board backed by the government would not allow the institution to continue if it didn't support the war. Gospel Advocate was told to stop publishing peace articles or else they will shut down the paper. Um, Several leaders in the peace movement were followed by investigators and threatened, like R.H. Boll was a German immigrant, so you can know he was particularly threatened. (laughs) Um, So World War I became a real government pressure cooker to kind of strangle the peace movement and peace churches, and it had an effect on Churches of Christ. And that was the beginning of the end of Lipscomb's view in any significant way in Churches of Christ. And by the time World War II comes around with Pearl Harbor and the nationalism that is that is a part of that, um, Lipscomb's understanding has, has become passe. In fact, it's become threatening. And even among Churches of Christ, even among the most ardent people who believed in the principles of of, um, restoration movement from the beginning, began to write very clear and substantial literature opposing Lipscomb's view. And World War II was filled with anti-Lipscomb rhetoric uh, because we don't want to be that. You know, given the culture as it was in during World War II, when everybody supported the war, and if you didn't support the war, then you were, um, you know, uh, you were the object of mock, mocking and hostility and uh, terror. And they identified you with the enemy, even. That's right. And so people in Churches of Christ kind of coalesced around the nationalism. And the nationalism now became an integral part, and the anti-communism became an integral part in the 1950s of much of Churches of Christ. And so we have this huge shift from, say, 1900 to 2000, even 1900 to 1960, a shift where while a significant number, it's hard 
hard to categorize, you know, how many, but a significant movement in Churches of Christ made it a peace church. But by 1950, it was no longer a peace church. In 1900, Churches of Christ were very um, sectarian in the sense of being separate from governmental activities and not uninvolved in governmental activities. They were not interested in government power. But by 1950, they are, and they are firmly entrenched in the nationalism that the 1950s promoted, especially with the Red Scare and anti-communism, um, which is, we can get into the civil rights movement, is one of the reasons why churches yeah. didn't speak out much about the civil rights movement, because they perceived it, especially from some of their key authors, they perceived it as a function of communism. So we're not going to we're not going to back that. We're not going to be involved in that. And that that Senate that sent churches of Christ on the road of of uh, ultimately the moral majority and you know republicanism and and that's kind of where a lot of churches of Christ sit these days. Not all, not all. There is a significant uh, diversity, I think, now among churches of Christ. But uh, around two thousand, no, I think primarily Republican. Yeah, I, I remember big generalizations. I mean, there, there are a lot oh, of exceptions sure. to that. Those are all big generalizations. Oh, certainly. Yeah, I mean, I was I was coming of age during you know that time, of course, and and not knowing what I know now, I can see the influence of 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 uh, these alternative ideas uh, and why I why I believed then what I believed then. And, but I do think it's it's amazing to kind of consider that rehabilitating these ideas can have a positive effect on us as a church. Mm, If only for the reason that once again, once we get our allegiance right, then we become a new force to be reckoned with. One that resists in a peaceful manner and and that is displaying the characteristics of the kingdom of God among us in a way that is not altogether seen all the time. Yes. And I'm, and so that's why I'm, I was so, you know, I mean, I was thrilled to discover Lipscomb in the first place and these ideas, you know, knowing that we had a history, but not knowing that this was part of it. And even super more thrilled to discover your book. And, uh, and, and so as we kind of begin, you know, kind of driving to the end here, I, I hope that you'll you know, give us an idea of like, what, what else will you find in this book Okay, that is both kind of on the historical level and then on a messaging level to both the churches of Christ and to Christians in general. Yes. What, what can, what can they gain from reading what you guys have written? Well, at a historical level, I think we do trace uh, the origins, at least in the restoration movement or the Stone Campbell movement, the origins of uh, this uh, particular view of the kingdom of God in relation to uh, civil government. And it's found in Barton W. Stone. Uh, and Barton W. Stone became very disillusioned with government because government wouldn't do anything about slavery. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Stone was ultimately an abolitionist. So in Stone, we see the beginnings of it. And we see a trajectory uh, through Fanning, which we talk about in Lipscomb. Uh, but we also put it in the larger context of the American scene. William Lloyd Garrison right. was very much of a similar view, Right. Uh, his abolitionism was also part of a Christian anarchism, but which needs, you know, anarchism, there needs very strong definition. It's not about violence or yeah. chaos. It's about the fact that the government is impotent, you know, to do yes. what is right, ultimately. So you, we get a little bit of that history as well. And the different ways in which 
this view, this radical view, going to the radix of the cross and the Sermon on the Mount, how this radical view has been played out, say, with Dorothy Day and Clarence Jordan. And so Lipscomb is not kind of this weird figure who stands alone. No, there's a whole tradition in the American context that reflects this, that Lipscomb was a participant in, with a, with a different little nuance, uh, but nevertheless rooted in this um, this kind of radical notion of the kingdom of God. And we also, I, I have a chapter where I talk about where Lipscomb uh, needs some critique, and, and that is in terms of how he deals with slavery and how he deals with segregation and what's his role and what's the church's role in that. Now, for the church, the church ought to be integrated. But Lipscomb, because he thought the church should be the leavening influence in the world, did not, did not speak out as much as he should have, perhaps. Uh, well, I don't want to say perhaps. He did not speak out as much as he should have from our perspective about Jim Crow and those the violence of, of the Reconstruction era and et cetera. Although he did oppose lynching and he did mention that several times. So I have one chapter where I deal with, okay, how does this play out in a particular issue? What does that look like for Lipscomb? And again, we all have our ideals and we all want to have our allegiance with the kingdom of God, but we are all flawed people. And, and Lipscomb had his flaws as well. And we wanted to make sure that was clear. And then another chapter is the World War I, what happened during World War I that, is, that changed the dynamics, not only uh, for Churches of Christ, but for many peace churches, uh, because the government had a very strong hand in maintaining its agenda and would not allow dissident voices about that agenda. And the last chapter is by Lee Camp, which attempts to address the current context. How do we live out this kingdom perspective in the particular context in which we live now? And what does that mean for voting? What does that mean for our allegiance? And how does what does our allegiance look like? And and I think that's the that's where the messaging comes through more most strongly is kind of a offering a trajectory that we can live in this way. This is how we can live out this in this particular moment. It's one chapter, so it's not everything Lee would want to say or what I would want to say, but it does give you, I think, some some ideas about how to embody kingdom allegiance in the present world, in the present context. Amen. Such a and it's such a good book. Okay. I mean, I can't recommend it enough. I appreciate that very much. So, is there anything you would like to kind of leave us with here today, either as a means of encouragement or or some another note, something you don't want us to forget? And then also tell us where we can find you on the net, your website, or if there's anything else you want to just promote for a second, we would be glad to make sure that people know about it. Well, thank you. I. I do want to say I've mentioned all the authors except for one, and that's Joshua Jeffrey, who wrote the the chapter on World War One. So I wanted to make sure I mentioned his name because he he's a brilliant uh, young man in terms of studying religious history in the context of World War One. He does a great job with that chapter. Oh, it's, it's such a good chapter. Yeah. I mean, it was just blew me away. Yeah. <laughs> he's got a lot more to say about it too. So, but that uh, I would recommend looking him up. Um, yeah, I, th- I think. Here's here's what I thought Lipscomb's fundamental contribution was, and he's not unique in this way, but if you think of the Sermon on the Mount as the ethics of disciples of Jesus, this is ethics for disciples of Jesus, and the Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom of God. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. Or pray that the kingdom will come. This is kingdom ethics. And if you buy into kingdom ethics in the Sermon on the Mount, it seems to me very difficult to integrate that with the agenda of violent, coercive government. And it sets up this, what Lipscomb would often talk about, you know, you can't serve two masters and you can't serve the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world at the same time. That that's the choice Jesus had to make himself in the wilderness. Do I serve Satan and inherit the kingdoms of the world? I mean, he told me he'd give me all this if I worshiped him. Or do I serve God only? And that's another key text for Lipscomb as well. Yeah. He said, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to serve God and only God and not seek the political power, to seek the imperial power, to seek the power that comes through the reins of the kingdoms of this world. You can find me at uh, johnmarkhicks.com website and uh, on Amazon, different other books as well, johnmarkhicks.com. I, I usually go by John Mark Hicks. So if you just put <laughs> that in, you'll see all sorts of stuff about me. Don't believe everything you read about me. But you'll <laughs> all see the good, that. none of the bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Sometimes it's hard to tell. <laughs> <laughs> well, if they're, if they're coming at you and saying that you're a big bad guy and you, you've got it out for America or whatnot, you probably know you're on the right track. <laughs> well, uh, they there's, do, some, there's some people who might say that as well. <laughs> yeah, well, no, it's, it's terrific. And so once again, uh, it's just, it's our distinct honor having you here just I'm so appreciative of your work. As much as I can say it, we're, we're, we're thankful for, for what you've done and, and for your whole team, well, really, all at once. Well, thank you, and, Norman. Uh, thank you, Doug. I do hope we'll get even more of the, of the authors of Resisting Babylon at some point. Uh, Babylon? Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> you can babble on about it, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. We're going to triple pun that one. Yeah. Okay. Well, again, <laughs> it's been great. Uh, and and Everybody, you know, we'll have plenty of links in our show notes. So go to libertarianchristians.com if you're not there already and find that article. We'll have some show notes. Pick up Resisting Babel. It's terrific. Look for John's other books. And, uh, and with that, I think we will conclude. John, thanks once again for being here with us. Thank you for the invitation. It's been a joy. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.